Morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen, and I get to serve with all of these lovely people here. And it is so exciting to hear that coming out of such a challenging season, God is still mobilizing people, God is still calling people, and every single one of us can play a role in prayer and support and finance and friendship. And uh, Desiree is just one of so many Riversiders who are just still acting in faith and serving the Lord in such courageous ways in this time. So, Sean, thank you for that prayer. Just to let you know, a couple of weeks ago, you heard about some of the exciting stuff that is happening from the branch outside, that one of the doors that God is opening up for them is to do adult literacy training amongst the poorest of the poor. Those are illiterate single moms in Jackson's Drift, and a lot of you responded to that. And I want to thank you for your response, and a number of you have already gone and made contact with the various people of the branch arts team. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about what it would look like to go and start something like that in a community such as Jackson's Drift. And what's happening at the moment is the team are realizing that there are better and less better ways of doing this. And so we want to have the greatest impact possible. So for those of you who have responded, please know that there is some groundwork that is being done in Jackson's at the moment. And as far as your participation, the team has your numbers and they'll be in touch with you. And just on that, uh, think about Craig. Craig has been serving here at Riverside for over seven years, and he's been able to take some long leave at the moment. And so just pray that the Lord would rejuvenate him and rest him and just really fill him with more of who he is and who he's calling Craig to be. But we're starting a new series today, which I'm so excited about. And so I want to open up with a scenario that if you've ever had young kids, you would know exactly what this looks like. And so sometimes in the middle of the night, you've got these young kids that are sleeping and you're trying to get to sleep. And then you hear a little cry or you hear a little cough and you hope that they go to sleep on their own, but they don't. And so you kind of reach that point where you know you need to get out of your bed and go see what's going on. And so what you do is you keep all the lights off. You keep your eyes half-lidded. You make your way through the darkness of the house. You get into their bedroom and you really are hoping that this is going to resolve quickly so that you can go back to sleep until a piece of Lego tries to bore itself through the bottom of your foot. I'm absolutely convinced that that is one of the most painful things especially because you're not anticipating it. You see, in the middle of the day, obviously, we can see the Lego. Usually, we're wearing shoes or we can tell the kids to clean up the Lego. And that's really an on-ramp to where we want to go today. You see, last week, we started talking about discipleship. That we as a church are starting to think that maybe pre-COVID status quo needed to be shaken. And maybe some of our walk of faith needed to be shaken. And so the overall challenge was to move from a static view of Christianity, a view that says, I wasn't a Christian, now I'm a Christian, I'm going to the good place, I'm all good, to a dynamic view of being a Christian, whereby we continue day by day, year on year, to the end of our days following Jesus. There's always more of Jesus to know. There's always more of His kingdom to see in our lives and through our lives. So we're called to be followers of Jesus, aka active disciples. 
But the problem with being a Christian is that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in this nice little controlled Christian environment, but it happens out there in the real world with all the pain and the pressures and the pleasures of the real world. And so being a disciple of Jesus Christ from Monday to Saturday is less like running on a treadmill, listening to your favorite music in an air-controlled environment. And it's more like running barefoot through the Kruger Park and you just know you've got to make it. You see, too often we apply Christian wisdom to so-called Christian spaces such as this space or maybe our time of Bible study or prayer or our life groups. And then we switch off the Christian wisdom switch when we go to the so-called secular world and we start applying secular wisdom to that space. And it's like walking through the house in the middle of the night with the lights off and we make these missteps where we hurt ourselves and injure our faith and sometimes our witness. And so the series that we're doing is called Mind Your Step, which is going to help us live and walk wisely in this very challenging world, not on Sunday morning, but on Monday. And so we're asking, how can we as Christians better navigate some of these big blocks of Lego that are threatening to cause pain to our lives and our witnesses as we walk this world. Things like politics, cancel culture, just general culture out there, conspiracy theories, our anger management issues. And let me say, this is one of the most important conversations we can be having right now. You see, this is about whether we truly are salt and light. This is about whether we're being wise or foolish in this world. Please don't see this as some little subcategory that if you've got time in your Christian life to work on this little side part of your faith, you'll give it maybe some attention. For some people, this is literally life and death. And what I mean by that is, if you haven't noticed, churches are emptier after COVID. And as I said last week, it's not just about bums in seats. It's about an absence of kingdom fruit in our lives. And we're walking this world and we're tripping ourselves up. And some people are watching us do this and they're saying, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't know if I want to be a Christian any longer. Others who maybe aren't Christians are looking in and watching how we are tripping up in the dark. And they're saying, if that's what it looks like to be a Christian, I don't know if I want to get on that train. So as we talk about minding our step, today we're going to be talking about how we walk through this world and engage with culture. And by culture, I mean it in the broadest possible sense. I mean society at large. I mean entertainment. I mean the social trends coming our way. How we live life, how we do life in this world. And so a verse that I'm hoping is really going to help us is Ephesians chapter 5 verses 14 onwards. And it starts off like this. It says, for it is light that makes everything visible. Remember the idea of waking up in the dark 
And the reason why we're standing on the Lego is because our eyes are closed and the lights are off. And so if we're wanting to walk well in God's world, we need to switch the lights on. We need to therefore live intentionally asking intelligent questions about culture and our faith and what it means for Monday and Friday and Saturday. Then Paul continues to say, this is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is as good a time as any for us to wake up for us to realize maybe we've been caught in a little bit of slumber over the last 18 to 24 months. And we might choose to stay there with our eyes closed and the lights off. But I want to appeal to you, this is a wake-up call. And let's choose to be Jesus' disciples in a far more effective way going forward. And Paul says, be very careful then how you live. That's that intelligent thinking. That's that uh, intentional thinking. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Last year, we did a series on the book of Proverbs about God's wisdom in various areas of our lives. And here's the thing about God's wisdom. As we're going to see later on, there are some very clear, for want of a better term, rules when it comes to certain parts of life. And then there's everything else. And some of us wish the Bible had about 5,000 more rules for every single circumstance I find myself in. And yet what God is wanting us to grow in is trusting where He has been clear and then growing in wisdom for the other parts of our life and not simply ignoring it because he doesn't have a chapter and a verse for how to run my social media platform. So how do we apply God's wisdom to politics and cancel culture and anger and social media and culture and we need to be wise. And then finally, Paul says, making the most of every opportunity. Now, do you think that's talking about getting the hugest bank account by the time you die? Nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's not what he's talking about here though. Making the most of every opportunity for the sake of the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, Jesus says, what does it profit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? When we are standing before our God, looking to what counts in eternity, it's not the things of this world. And so if we are going to make the most of every opportunity, not just the so-called sacred spaces, but also the rest of our lives, the challenge is to wake up, trust God's wisdom, be intentional and intelligent about this. So some of you might say, yeah, but Stephen, we live in a crazy world. Cut me some slack here. And you know what? We do live in a crazy world. But here's somewhere that I need to discipline myself to go when I start to feel so weak and helpless because of the world that I live in at the moment. The first one is, Act 17 says that God has determined the times and places where we will live. That means 
He's not simply calling you to survive the next 40 years. He's calling you to make a difference for His kingdom. He knows what's going on right now politically. He knows what's going on right now in our culture and some of the tensions that are threatening to cripple some of us. And so he's not just saying, try get out alive. He's saying, make a difference. The other thought that I think about is that I think it's bad for us, but I think about the early Christians. Yaku posts every single day in the men's group reminding us what is going on in the lives of many Christians around the world. But in the early church, just for being a Christian, you could get thrown into prison, beaten up, or thrown into the gladiatorial arenas only to be torn apart by wild animals simply for our faith. And we think getting canceled on Facebook is the biggest challenge right now. Then I remind myself that the time of Jesus and the disciples in the early church, especially as they went into the, the sort of non-Christian Gentile world, do you know that it was very normal? In fact, expected for an adult Roman male to get his sexual needs met by multiple prostitutes and that wasn't seen as adultery. Do you know, Desiree, that if you were born in the Roman world at a time and you were born with a child with a disability, it was expected, they called them exposing the child, putting them out on the rocks to die. Of course, that still happens in our world, which is why you're here. Do you know that in the Greco-Roman world, if you were a rich, wealthy male, it is very common for you to have a younger boy, prepubescent boy to meet certain needs. You can join the dots yourself. So do we live in a hectic world? Absolutely. But the time of the birth of the church was a hectic time in history. Let's go even further back to the Old Testament. Oh, everyone was these nice Jews. Have you read your Old Testament? It's insane. Even the great kings would be fired from our church. David, murder, adultery, Solomon, hundreds of wives and concubines. concubines. You read through the book of Kings, for every good king, there was like five bad kings. And not just, oh, this is a bad king. Leading Israel into idolatry. And not just worshiping in the wrong building on a Sunday or a Saturday sacrificing their children to foreign gods, engaging in temple prostitution. So yes, things are bad. Things have always been bad. So let's heed the call with courage. And so I think what we need is what we read about in 1 Chronicle 12 verses 32 to be men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So I've been reading a very interesting and encouraging book by an author called Caleb Kaltenbach. The book is called God of Tomorrow, and he's speaking into exactly the situation. And he says, you know, when it comes to Christians engaging with the culture around them, there's generally three ways that we tend to do this. And the first one is what we most commonly see on social media, and that is aggressively fighting with a broken society. This is when we're known for what we're against and no one knows for what we're for. 
This is when we're angry all the time and we're condemning everything that's wrong with the world around us. Now, of course, we're going to speak later. There is a time to stand up and speak the truth with courage. That's not what he's talking about here. This is when we're speaking with no compassion. This is one-upmanship, moral high grounds. Maybe a biblical example. There's kind of two around the time of Jesus are the Essenes and the Pharisees. You see, the Essenes knew that Israel was corrupt and that the temple system and Jerusalem was corrupt. And their response was, they're so corrupt, we're out of here. We're going to go live in some caves and have a holy huddle there. The Pharisees saw the same thing, but they chose to live amongst the people of Israel. But they used to walk around and all these sinners. Look at all these immoral people, these ungodly people around us. If only they could be as religious as me. Caleb, in this part of the book, he says, combativeness without compassion is always going to be counterproductive. So that's the first way. The second way that we might respond is maybe an equal and opposite response to the former, and that is surrendering and fully hopping on board with society. This is maybe where we've seen the danger of these legalistic religious people. And we see how angry they are and the hurt they cause. So I don't want to be like them. I'm going to go the other way and be the nice guy. And I'm just going to love everyone. And I'm going to avoid those parts of Scripture that challenge my faith and my culture. And I'm just going to get on board with the latest trend. And everyone's going to say about me, I never knew Christians could be so cool. And if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves compromising on truth. And maybe a biblical example would be, they're not often spoken about in the scriptures, but are the Herodians. The Herodian group were Jews under Roman rule who decided to join up with the Romans. So basically, if you can't beat him, join him. And we can so often be guilty of doing the same thing with culture around us. And so I'm hoping before we get to the third way, that you're thinking through the lens of Jesus Christ, the character of God and the kingdom of God. And I'm hoping you're seeing maybe some truth on both sides that yes, we do need to be able to speak the truth at times. But I don't know if I want to be known as being this aggressive hater the whole time. I'm hoping you're seeing that Jesus was holy, way holier than the Pharisees, but he was still amongst their people. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. He wasn't, but he obviously enjoyed being around people and having meals with them. Enough to have this case brought against him. So maybe Stephen is their third way. And here's the third way that Caleb Kaltenbach proposes. He says, what about this? Investing in society with empathy and conviction. This is asking the question, how do we engage with grace and love and conviction and truth? And what does that look like? And how does that form my decisions on a day-to-day basis? This, by the way, we have this 
banner up every single week. And at the bottom there are these words which really shape so much of who we are as a church, for the world and for the King. Why those words? Well, when we look at the nature of King Jesus, we see how He engaged with the world. You might have heard it said about Christians that we should be in the world, not of the world. And I'd say, cool, that takes us about 60% of the way there. Because the Pharisees were in the world, not of the world. And I don't want to be a Pharisee. And so we took this one step further. Yes, we need to be in the world, not of the world. But we need to be for the world. For God so loved the world that He entered our world. He rolled up His sleeves, which is why I like this word, investing in society is not just about posting your latest angry rant on social media or sharing articles about how dangerous such and such part of our culture is and doing nothing about it. But rather, whether you post or not, that's entirely up to you. Please be wise when you do that. Rolling up your sleeves like Jesus and learning how to insert the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness and make a real difference. So how are we going to do this practically? Well, I want to give you three big thoughts that are really going to help you. And the first one may sound way too obvious, but I think it begs repeating. And that is number one, to understand God's will. Some of you are like, yeah, I also want to know God's will. Do I take this job, that good job, marry her, marry her, chicken or beef tomorrow night? What's God's will? Romans 12 verses 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We will conform either to the kingdom of God or if we are unthoughtful in neutral gear and we're not intentional about this, we will by default go down the path of least resistance and be conformed to the pattern of this world. We will literally be discipled by the kingdoms of the world. So do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Something needs to happen in us. By how? The renewing of my mind, I need to intentionally think differently. Then, and only then, you will be able to test what God's will is. Some of you want to test God's will without being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And to be honest, that's one of the biggest problems we see in pastoral ministry. If we are to engage culture with the kingdom of God, it makes sense that we are first aligned with the kingdom of God. And this is where we develop our convictions. But as I said earlier, as we do apply our minds to God's word, we will very quickly see that there are some things that are clear. And when it's clear in scripture, We need to develop that as a conviction and live our lives according to those convictions. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, there is no chapter and verse for so much of what occupies your time and your attention during the course of the week. So how do we do this? Living in these so-called gray areas. And as I said earlier, again, some of us wish that there were more laws for us, more rules for us to live out these gray areas. Let me give you some example. So when it comes to the scriptures and we preached a sermon about food and drink and all that kind of thing a couple of years ago, it's online. 
can help you find it if you want. We go into this in a lot more detail. But God gave us food as a good thing. But when we take it to a certain point, it's called gluttony. And once we cross that line of excess, we are sinning. That's clear, but Stephen, exactly when? You know, is it a 200-gram steak or a 300-gram steak? I don't know. You need to figure this out. The Scriptures, and this is going to shock some of you, and once again, we've gone through this biblically. The Scriptures see wine as a good way to celebrate life. And yet we cross a line of excess into drunkenness and the scriptures are crystal clear that is a line not to be crossed, being under the control of another substance. When it comes to money, the scriptures say money is a good thing until you love it. Until it becomes idolatrous in your life. Sex is a great gift in marriage. Outside of that, we're messing with things that are so dangerous. And so we've got these clear lines and these in-between zones. And we don't like these in-between zones. But the way the Scriptures address this, they call them issues of conscience. And we need to learn to grow wisdom and allow God to speak to us through our consciences. Now, I know some of us get afraid that we're going to just write everything off as conscience and I'm going to do whatever I want. We need to mature our consciences. We need to spend time in God's Word. We need to understand what is crystal clear and not all the do-nots, but all the do's. Walking in step with the Holy Spirit, being transformed by the renewing of my mind. And then, yes, for some of you, according to your conscience, you may choose not to have a glass of wine. Others of you, while staring clear of the other side of things, according to your mature conscience, you may choose to have a glass of wine. Oh, Stephen, I don't like that. Well, that's the way the Scriptures speak about these things. The other thing that is clear is that this guy must not judge this guy and this guy must not judge this guy. But Paul says, do not use your freedom for sin, but for pleasing God. So we need to allow our minds to be transformed. What is clear in Scripture? Yes, the do's and the don'ts, but how do I grow and mature my conscience and trust that God can speak to me and give me wisdom for life and life decisions when it comes to engaging what I watch, what I eat, what I drink, what I spend my money on, and trust God to guide me by my conscience. In fact, the Scriptures say, if you sin against your conscience, you are sinning against God. So that's number one. Number two, as we engage the world around us, this is contrary to just those who are aggressively fighting with culture around us, is learn to love our neighbors. Listen, I know for some of us, we're wired differently. Some of us are like wired towards the love side. Some of us are wired towards the truth side. And for those of us who are wired towards the truth side, I know that we're worried about truth. I know that you're worried about false claims about God and, and falsehoods out there. We want to stand on truth. And so sometimes we're right-headed and wrong-hearted by condemning everything that we believe is not true. But then we get to when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus responds by saying, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, the second is like it. Love your neighbor and as you love yourself. Now, most of us interpret that to mean the guy asked for one commandment. Jesus just went one step further and gave them commandment number one and commandment number two. But I've become convinced that what Jesus is saying there is that commandment number two is on par with commandment number one. If you truly want to love God, you have no excuse but to love your neighbor. And if you truly want to love your neighbor, that only comes from loving God and receiving his love. The second is like it. So this is top two stuff. We are to be known for our love for God and our love for our neighbors. And I know what some of you are afraid of. You're afraid that if you love someone, you're affirming some of their lifestyle choices and their decisions to go against God's will and way. And so you're left with this conundrum. Listen, since when was love based on agreeing on everything? Husbands and wives. If love was based on agreeing on everything, there would not be a marriage intact 24 hours from now. Yeah, we know that. It is a fallacy to believe that if we love someone, we are automatically affirming their lifestyle and their choices. Do you know that we can love, we can serve, we can sacrifice for someone who believes differently to you? Someone who has a different sexual orientation to you? Someone who votes differently to you? And right at the top of the list is someone who's got a different view on the vaccine to you. I wish I had the time, but this is what the story of the Good Samaritan is all about. The same guy who asked Jesus about the greatest commandments responds by saying, oh, okay, who's my neighbor? Because I love loving these guys. I don't know if I could love those guys. So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan and I'm just hoping you know the story. And the point is, the neighbor is the person who has a different faith orientation to you. A person who is ethnically different to you, culturally different to you, morally different to you, and yet you choose because of the love of God in you to love them and serve them and even sacrifice for them. Why is that so important? Because that's how God loved you. Imagine God waited for you to meet His moral standards, to meet His religious standards there would literally not be a single soul in the kingdom of heaven. What did God choose to do? Leave his place of comfort and holiness and perfect love and perfect righteousness and invade our space, roll up his sleeves and take our sin upon him, showing us the kingdom of light while exposing the kingdom of darkness. I don't know a single person who was criticized into the kingdom of heaven. But I know that there are millions of people who are in the kingdom of heaven right now because someone showed them the love of Christ by serving them, loving them, being patient with them, being thoughtful, sacrificing for them, and in short, demonstrating Christ in their life 
And when the time is right, earning the right to speak. Because I know a lot of you are getting nervous. Stephen, this sounds like a whole lot of love without truth. Well, let's talk about truth. That's gonna take us to the third thought for us as we engage the world around us. And that is to engage culture missionally. See, most of us have a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to speaking truthfully about the true things of who Jesus is. And the first challenge is quite honestly, can you do that? In the marketplace of ideas and conversation, can you in an informed way respond to people's questions and objections? And if you just come up with this prepackaged response, they're like, but that's not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about this. That is the very reason why I wrote my book, The Reason for Everything, to equip us to do exactly that. But when we look at the book of Acts, we don't see a one-size-fits-all approach. We see, for example, when Peter is preaching to the Jews, his sermons are loaded with Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because the Jews are already convinced of the Old Testament. They love the Hebrew scriptures. They love Abraham. They love Moses and the prophets. And so they're like, we're already down with that kind of stuff. And so Peter just says, but let me show you how all of this is pointing towards Jesus. But when Paul goes to Gentile cities who don't know who Moses is from a bar of soap, who don't know the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul at times doesn't quote a single Old Testament verse. So where does he go? Creation. At times, and I know this makes some of you uncomfortable, he quotes their pagan poets. Even your poets have said, and what he's trying to show them is when we look at creation and culture, the fulfillment of all of that is in Jesus. And he does get to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his judgment. But he connects with them first before condemning them. So I want to give you three questions. And I know maybe some of you are hoping that we wrap up now, but here's three questions so that we can engage culture missionally and intelligently. And this, by the way, is the kind of section that I really want to suggest that you go back and listen over. So that it permeates how you see the world around you. Question number one, what is culture really looking for? Yes, we can blast the sin and the brokenness of the world around us in angry tones. And some of that may be true. But if we think about it, beneath every sin and every trend of culture is a true God-given desire that they are looking to wrong places to fulfill. So what is that? God-given desire. The thing that God gave them. Let me give you an example of this. So they say that the oldest occupation in the world is prostitution. And for thousands of years, obviously, just one of the biggest ways that culture in our world can get broken and really get messed up is in the world of sexuality. And so beneath our culture of sex and sexuality and sexual sin, I want to suggest to you that the God-given desire is not simply sexual fulfillment, which is a God-given desire. 
But one step below that, I believe what drives our passions and our addictions at such desperate levels is our need for true love and affirmation. I want someone to accept me for who I am, warts and all. And so I'm gonna enter either this fantasy world or this world that I know is fake where I'm convincing myself there's people that look like Greek gods and and goddesses are satisfying my needs and are affirming me in that process. We can condemn that, but there's something beneath that that is holy. Which leads us to question number two. How do idols fail them. See, this is the bait and switch nature of idols. They overpromise, underdeliver. Oh, you want affirmation, do you? I'm going to give you a little bit of affirmation. And when you're done, you're going to feel so ashamed of yourself that you're going to need more affirmation. And you're going to come back to my drinking hall. And then you're going to get a little glimpse of affirmation. And then when you're done, you're going to feel even more shame. And so I'd ask someone who is looking for this kind of affirmation and love in their lives. Maybe you started off by needing an hour of pornography a week. Short while later, you needed something a bit harder. You needed four hours of pornography a week. And for some people, it went from pornography to various other expressions. And so I want to ask this question, how is this working out for you? Are you feeling more affirmed or more insecure and more needy? And are you becoming afraid of this vacuous hole inside of you that it doesn't matter how much you indulge, nothing seems to fill it? Which leads us to question number three. How does Jesus fulfill their deepest desires? This is what Timothy Keller, for those of you who don't know, we quote him regularly, but one of the reasons why we quote him so often It's because he's done what so few people have been able to do, and that is to have a thriving, gospel-centered, biblical church in Manhattan, New York, where almost every church plant before that failed. And able to engage a secular society with the truth of the gospel. And so I listen to people like that. And what he calls this is subversive fulfillments. That the gospel subverts the idols of this world and yes, confronts the idols of this world, but it also connects with our deepest desires and fulfills our deepest desires. And you don't get that if all we're doing is angrily shouting how broken the world is around us. How is Jesus truly the good news? And in this particular case, if you want to be truly loved and accepted for who you are, all your shame, all your sin, all your brokenness, all your failings, all of your shortcomings. No idol will ever satisfy that need. Only God's love in Jesus Christ can do that. Because He accepts you as you are without making you jump through any hoops. Oh, but Stephen, what about all my sin? Well, He pays for your sin. And then He starts walking with you day by day month by month, growing a new life, who you were created by God in Christ to be. You can apply this kind of thinking to every single aspect of culture. Listen, God made us to be culture makers. 
and we deny this part of being the image of God when we're just angrily condemning culture around us. But neither can we blindly do life and be unthoughtful about this and unintentional about this and just land up standing on Lego all the time or something worse. So I'm hoping that you're seeing that those verses from Ephesians 4, that by living in the light, growing in our convictions, allowing God to speak to us and father us and nurture our consciences, allowing us to be wise, growing grace within us so that we can have conviction and grace. We can also, as we do that, look behind the curtain of culture and see how God truly wants to meet people where they are at with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is how we can be intentional in all aspects of our life. So I wanna pray for us. Father, I thank you that everything we said today is rooted in the gospel, how you loved us and how you demonstrated your love for us. And at the risk of oversimplifying this, all you're doing is asking us to do in turn to the world around us what you've done for us. And as we heard earlier from Desiree, to roll up our sleeves, engage broken places, not to compromise, but with the beautiful good news of the gospel. And what that literally means for people who are so desperate. God, give us new eyes to see. God, I pray that if we're kind of like those Pharisees and the, the Essenes that we're just condemning, condemning, condemning all the time. God, I pray that we look up and see the God who receives me, even in my legalism and my self-righteousness. You paid for my legalism and self-righteousness and you break my heart with grace and give me a heart of flesh. And for some of us, you are maybe if we're honest, we're muddying the waters, we're compromising. And we're defending it because oh, I don't wanna be like those people. God, I pray that you give us the courage to develop convictions while still holding on to the grace and truth of Christ. And Lord, give us wisdom as we think about the world around us, as we apply this intentionality to our workplaces, to our social places, to some of the things that seem to threaten us in this world. May we respond with grace and truth and light. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.